Well, we'll turn back uh, with God's help to Psalm 51, and really we're going to focus on verses uh, just 1 and 2 uh, for a time together uh, this morning. Your car may reveal a lot about you, or somebody's car may reveal a lot about them. Uh, some will keep it in pristine condition, others just let the rain wash off the dirt. Uh, but there comes a time when we must get the hose out or head along to the power wash at the petrol station or even the drive through car wash. And you can use all sorts of scents and smells, wax and gloss. And in just a few moments, you can step back and see for yourself the difference that it's made and how much better it has made your car look. But no matter how much you hose or scrub or wax, the outside of the car, the inside remains just the same. The cleansing must go deeper. In Psalm 51, David digs deep and he lays bare his heart before God in prayer. On the outside, people would have looked at David and thought to themselves, King, handsome and successful. But this is not David just making a show, making a case for himself, for others to see so that he looks presentable, so that he's better with his rule keeping or his acts of kindness or being more disciplined in his public worship. Remember the Bible says that man looks on the outward but God looks at the heart and David knows that. And so David now digs deep inside as he begins to pray. And so just even looking at these two verses specifically, to begin with, I want to see how David prays. And the first question to ask is, who does he pray to? The answers are obvious, but let's dig deep. Who does he pray to? Have a look with me at verse 1. He begins. And just remember the context of why David is praying. He now comes to his knees at last and he says, Have mercy on me, O God. David begins not talking about himself, anything he's done. He doesn't come to God asking prayers, what's the future going to hold? But David starts on his knees. Certainly that seems to be the posture of his heart. And he knows where to go. He goes straight to the throne of God. You know, as you read through this psalm, which you can do maybe for yourself later this afternoon, as you read through Psalm 51, you'll notice that now David doesn't take his eyes off the Lord at all. A very quick glance shows you at least 29 direct references to the Lord, to God that David makes in Psalm 51. Not to mention how many indirect references there are as well. But the question is, what is a man like David? What basis does a man like David have to come to our holy God? What basis do any of you, what basis do any of us have to come? Because we can, and we've considered as we've set the context in 2 Samuel chapter 11... We can think about David's specific sins and adultery and murder 
and the hardness of his heart, as we'll see, for at least a year before he comes to make this prayer. What basis does a man like David have to come to God? But we don't really need to think about David. A congregation like this, individuals like you and me, we know our own hearts most, and we know our sin. And so what basis do you or I have to call out in prayer to holy God? David was a sinner. Uh, He says later in verse 5, I was sinful at birth. Not because he was such a, a bad baby, but because of the term we use, original sin. Because, as Paul writes, through the one man's disobedience, referring to Adam all the way back in Genesis, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You may have heard this quote before, that we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. I was leading a group earlier this week and I was asked that very question. Talking about the Ten Commandments. What if I kept all of them perfectly? I said, well, you can try. You're going to fail, but you can try. But even if you did, you're still a sinner. I think we tend to have such a little grasp of what sin is. Uh, we will Maybe even in prayer, and as Christians, as the church, we maybe play down our sin uh, using maybe gentler terminology we talk about when we trip, or our falls, or our errors, or our mistakes. But God detests it. He cannot be in relationship with us because of it. He sent his son into the world to save us from it. A few weeks ago, I'm sure the weather wasn't great here either, but certainly up north, uh, the weather, the snow was really bad. Uh, and the snow gates were closed in different parts of the highlands, especially. And there was no way through. But you know, these gates being shut might save your life. And because of sin, the gates, the pathway to God is shut from us too. But now, because of what God has done through Jesus, the gate is open. And if you enter through it, it will save your soul. What basis does David have to come to a holy God? What basis do any of us have? Well, not because he's the king. Not because he's King David but because he's a child, a child of God. The prophet Jeremiah says of God, God says, call on me and I will answer you. Just uh, think about that for a moment. Isn't it amazing that God wants you and me, sinners, to call out to him? To call out to him in desperation and in delight. In the midst of our sorrows and when we've got singing on our lips. Despite the sins we have committed, God says to you today, call on me and I will answer you. David knows God well. He pleads in verses 1 and 2 
about God's character. And this character of God, David has a knowledge of and he's has had experience of already. And he's experienced the blessing of the character of God. So notice there in verse 1 and 2 that he cries out according to these two aspects of God's character. His unfailing love and his great compassion. His unfailing love, a word we use of his hesed love, his loyal love, his covenant mercy. mercy. He's pleading to the covenant-keeping God, the God who makes promises and who never breaks these promises. He's made some of these significant covenants, these promises, notably uh, to Noah and to Abraham, to Israel, even to David himself. Just four or five chapters earlier in 2 Samuel, before the sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, God has made this promise to David, through you will come one who will sit on the throne forever. From your generation, David, I promise there'll be one who will sit on the throne forever. And then four chapters later, David commits adultery and murder and is unrepentant for at least 12 months. And David now appeals to the God whose love never fails, as a man who has failed again. He appeals to the unbreakable love of God from a broken, sinful man. And then he says, according to your great compassion. And here David is repeating in line three what he's already said in line two. He's just using different words to express himself. Other translations may have manifold compassion or multitude of mercy. David is longing for this fresh outpouring from his loving and his compassionate God. He's not minimizing his sin. He says in verse 3, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. He feels the guilt of it. The shame of it. The sin that he's committed. But David knew no matter how many sins he has committed, there is far more love and compassion to be received from God. And that's the same for you. That's why we must be so careful. That's why we prayed at the beginning that Satan would not be working and stirring in your hearts and minds as you listen to the sermon, as you hear this psalm, that your sin is too much, too bad, or too dirty, that you have sinned too many times. You may think, well, I, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. But what we sang at the beginning, though my sins they are many, is biblically true. His mercy, God's mercy for your sins is far more. Uh, think about a waterfall. You've stood there watching it seemingly like the water's never going to end coming over the end, edge of that cliff. Well, when we think about the mercy of God for your life and for mine, it does never end. He is a God with unfailing love and great compassion. And once you've experienced this compassionate God, you don't forget it. David sings of it 
numerous times throughout the Psalter. Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Psalm 145, he sings again, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, rich in love and slow to anger. And you could find many, many more uh, quotations just from David throughout uh, the scriptures. But when we think about God being compassionate, we come ultimately to think about Jesus Christ. And the compassion in the Gospels we see that Jesus has had on those who were sick and suffering, the demon-possessed. You know, when he met uh, these two crowds, uh, when he fed the 4,000 and the 5,000, uh, he looks upon the crowd and it says that he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. He said, looking at them, that they are like a sheep. Without a shepherd. As he looks at these 4,000 plus people, they are like a sheep without a shepherd. And what does David most famously sing about his gracious and compassionate God? Words you've sung hundreds of times before, I'm sure. The Lord David the sinner sings, the Lord is my shepherd. And so have you experienced God's love and compassion Is the Lord your shepherd? Have you cried out to him to be saved, to be forgiven, and to come into a relationship with him? So this is who David begins praying to. He begins praying to God. Uh, But then what about? And again, the answer is obvious. Secondly, what about? What does David pray about? He prays about his sin. We have this really relatable psalm. Psalm 51, because of David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband, Uriah. He has sinned in adultery, murder, and then covering up his sin and being unrepentant for a period of time. You don't remember where we are in, in the life of David when he makes this prayer. David is a believer in God. He is a man after God's own heart. He is in the height of his service for the Lord. As we mentioned, God had made a covenant with him from which Jesus was going to come. David brought peace to and with the surrounding nations. He led Israel to many military victories. Everything seemed to be going well as a man and as a king. And his reputation was all on the up, up, up until David looked down. Until he fell into sin and let Satan get in. When he should have had his armor on spiritually and literally, he should have been at war. He left the door open to temptation. And that lingering look led to lust, to adultery and murder. You know when you read through the whole narrative of 2 Samuel It struck me as I did in my study because Bathsheba is repeatedly referred to as Uriah's wife. Even when she gives birth to the son she had with David, she is Uriah's wife. The Bible doesn't and the church must never be tempted to sweep sin under the carpet. So David comes out of hiding. It's taken him over nine months at least to get to this point. 
David didn't confess or profess until the prophet Nathan came to him and told him, you are the man, David. But now here, David lays down a trilogy of his wrongdoing before God. Three words he uses to express how far short he's fallen, to express the wrongdoing in his life. Verses 1 and 2, uh, he uses these words, transgressions, iniquity, and sin. Uh, they speak about his rebellious actions, iniquity is what's crooked or bent, and sin is known as what missing the mark. Sin means to miss the mark. Now in a congregation like this, um, you'll have some of you may watch darts, maybe back at Christmas when the World Championship is on. Others of you may prefer to watch paint dry. But that's probably the only time a year I really watch darts and get into it. Uh, but it was really good this year as the 16-year-olds unranked made it all the way to the final. And you're willing him to win. And, you sh- and obviously he did win game after game until he came to the final. And what happens so agonizingly with uh, these darts players, the camera's on them initially. And then as they're about to throw it, it zooms into the double 20 or whatever it's going to be on the board that the cameraman assumes the, the dart's going to go. And then finally the dart flies into shot and you're expecting it just to land in the bed but it agonizingly goes just the other side of the wire he just misses but in regards to our sin we don't just miss we are far and wide we could have a trilogy of words and many many more describing our sin and how far short we fall. But somebody has hit the mark for you. Finishing off Paul's words, that there, because of the one man's obedience, talking about Jesus, the many were made righteous, talking about you. But our sin does have an effect. It affects ourselves. Uh, the sense of shame sets in. Romans 7.3, O wretched man that I am. And we can feel like that sometimes, but I think if we're honest, we don't often feel as sh- that shame for the wrong things we've done. But sin affects our work, our relationships with other people, and ultimately our relationship with God. We are unfit for His presence. Isn't that uh, what happened to Adam and Eve as they were expelled from the Garden of Eden? David's sin affected himself, Bathsheba, Uriah, the child born, his family, the nation, and ultimately God. It had this ripple effect, like when you throw a stone into the water and the circles just get wider and wider and wider. Sin leaves scars on yourself and on other people around you. I don't need to explain that too much to you. Let me share the story. When I was uh, just, I think, nine years old, I'm kind of guessing, but I was in primary school and uh, my eldest brother is just five years older than me, so he he was at that point stronger and fitter and faster, but we would cycle down to school 
he was uh, catching the bus at the end of the corner to go to the high school. But as we would get down, I, I wanted to race him. My pride, even there as a child, was set in wanting to beat him, wanting to get there. Even though the odds were stacked against me, I was desperate to win. And so it was quite close. But as we came to the final corner to go towards the school, I knew if you weren't ahead by that point, then there was no more chance to, to cut in front and to win. And so I pedaled as hard as I possibly could. And as we came to the corner, I came closer and closer to him, knowing that uh, it was a risky maneuver I was going to do. But then as I came to the corner, I came to it too fast, came off the bike and came skidding along the pavement with my head hanging over onto the roads. A car came along this main road and swerved, uh, obviously, to avoid me, thankfully, uh, and pulled in. Uh, that person in the, in the car happened to be uh, the headmaster of another school, but took the time to tell my head teacher so that I would get in trouble too. But that event, uh, not just the story as I'm now sharing it to all of you, has scarred my memory and the row that I got afterwards. It also scarred my hand. And even today, I still have a scar on this hand. Should remind me, shouldn't it, of the sinful man that I am. David's experience should be a warning to us. David, nor I, nor you, glory in the grime of our sin, but we can now glory in the grace of our God. Because Jesus is now the one with the scars in his hands. And both now and forever, in eternity, those of us here who have asked God to forgive us for our sins, we can worship him. Marvel in this fact that he has gone to the cross for us. He has taken our place. He has paid it all. David begins by praying to God about his sin. And then thirdly, what's he praying for? So he's praying to God about his sin, but what for? He's praying for mercy. He's praying for forgiveness. Our NIVs here uh, use the word mercy. Other Bible translations uh, can use the word grace. It seems to be interchangeable. could be either. And of course, mercy and grace are just two sides of the same coin. Mercy is when we do not receive what we do deserve. So because of our sin, we deserve separation from God, our place in hell, and eternal punishment. We don't receive it because Jesus has taken our place. That's mercy. But equally, grace is when we receive what we do not deserve. Our relationship with God, our place in heaven, and eternal life. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. You can remember it that way. God's riches at Christ's expense. And if David used three words, a trilogy of terms to speak of his wrongdoing, he now matches that with three words, three phrases, in appeal for God's mercy. 
again there in verses 1 and 2. He uses these phrases, blot out, wash away, cleanse me. He says, blot out my transgressions. To blot out is the complete removal. It's not just uh, to stroke with a pen through a word, a line through a word, so that it's maybe stroked out, but you can still see it. It's not even to use typics so that it's covered over, but you really know it's still underneath. No, it's the complete removal of any and every record. This word here, blot out, is actually the same Hebrew word that's used in the story of Noah and the flood. That God said he would blot out every sinful living thing on the earth because of their wickedness. He was going to blot them out. Apart from those he spared in the covering of the ark, the rest would be blotted out. This is David's prayer in a positive sense. Blot out all my iniquity. And he also says, wash away, blot out my transgressions. Secondly, he says, wash away all my iniquity. Maybe this will happen later on this afternoon. Uh, But as we wash the dishes, usually on a Sunday after your lunch, there's some that are just a pain to wash. And in some of your houses, there's going to be one pan that you leave to soak uh, because you think the water's going to help. And then you really just want somebody else to come along and take on the challenge because you need to scrub that pan, don't you? You need to actually put your elbow into it and, and wash it thoroughly. That's what we sang in Psalm 51. It's what the ESV has that word as well. To wash thoroughly. And that's what David wants here. Wash thoroughly away all my iniquity. And then the third phrase he uses is cleanse me from my sin. Uh, Cleanse, he's referring back to the temple. It's this ritual term. Think about the leper that we read about throughout the Bible. And the leper who had to be excluded from the town, from the city, to live in isolation and had to repeatedly say to anybody that came anywhere near them, I am unclean, unclean. And the leper would have longed to hear these words from the From the priest. As David will say later in in verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop. Purify me and I will be whiter than snow. The leper is longing for that hyssop to be used on him. The sprinkling cleansing water. Ritually in the temple. To be declared clean. And that's what David is longing from here. Not from a man in a robe. But from God. Cleanse me from my sin. He's longing to hear these words, you are clean, you are forgiven, to be pronounced clean. Of course, all of these uh, rituals and sacrifices in the Old Testament, in the temple, in the tabernacle, they were all pointing forwards towards the sacrifice at Calvary of Jesus Christ, who was crucified to take away our sins so that we could be cleansed and forgiven And be shown mercy and given grace. And just as we finish, notice how David lays claim to all of this. Because if you're going to make this prayer yourself, it needs to be personal. It's not our sin. It's not how bad Scotland is. David says, look at it, my transgressions, my iniquities. My sin. This is his mess. It's his fault. 
And as he comes crying out to the Lord to blot out, wash away and cleanse him, as he said, as we were saying earlier to the children, if you make this prayer for forgiveness, God will respond to you. He will forgive you. And that is where David began, praying to God about his sin for forgiveness. And this is what some of you have. And this is what some of you can receive right now, today, as you pray to God. And as we will sing, may these be your words. May David's words help you to pray this prayer for yourself. May the words we're about to sing be words that you can pray for yourself. And know that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Jesus' veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood. They lose all their guilty stains. Amen.